0: Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. So we continue in our series through this last book that we have in the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, and we will look a second time, and for the last time, at verses 9 through 20, next week, next well the next time we're in Revelation, we will move on to the second chapter. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. We're in the last book of the Bible, but in the first book of the Bible, and in the very first verse, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what we recognize here are the creation of two distinct realms. The earth is the lower, visible realm where we find the dwelling place of man. And the heavens are the upper, invisible realm where we find the Lord's dwelling place in His heavenly temple. The book of Colossians reminds us of this in chapter 1, verse 16, which says, For by Him, that is Christ, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. You see, in that verse, the visible creation corresponds to the earth. And the invisible creation with the he- is associated with the heavens. The invisible heavens are often spoken of in scripture as the highest heavens, where God sits enthroned, Over his visible creation. Now, it's important to be aware of the other way that scripture speaks of the invisible realm of heaven. It's invisible to us. It's a very real place, but presently invisible to our naked eyes. It is spoken of in John chapter 4 and elsewhere as the realm of the spirit and truth the Shekinah spirit has gloriously filled that realm with his presence. As an analogy to that, we might think of the way that the Shekinah glory spirit filled the tabernacle or filled the temple after each one was built by the Israelites. Well, in the very beginning when God created the invisible heavens, it too was filled with the Shekinah spirit presence of God. And so the invisible heavens is the realm of the spirit and truth. This is the realm to which John, the apostle John was referring when he said he was in the spirit On the Lord's Day. This describes, beloved, new covenant worship. In the old covenant, the worship of of God was at an earthly tabernacle or temple, which was a copy. It was a copy of the invisible heavenly tabernacle or temple. And so old covenant worship was in copies. It was in a copy And it was in the lower realm of earth and not in the upper realm of the spirit. Not so with the new covenant worship. Since the resurrection and ascension of Christ, we now worship in truth, not in copy. And we worship in the upper realm of the spirit and not in the lower realm of the earth. Of course, bodily, we are all Here, But because we are united to our Savior who is in heaven, who is sitting at the right hand of God, our worship takes place there before his throne in the upper realm, in the realm of the spirit. Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday. He was raised up into that upper realm. And so we... In the New Covenant, not only worship in the upper realm, in the realm of the Spirit, not only is our worship heavenly, in other words, but also we worship on Sunday and not on Saturday as God's people did in the Old Covenant. Again, Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week. And after that, the church began to call Sunday The Lord's day. And so John, the Apostle John, writing the book of Revelation, though exiled to the island of Patmos on account of his testimony to Jesus, was nevertheless worshiping in the realm of the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, on the first day of every week, that is, every Lord's Day, we too worship in the Spirit, in the realm of the Spirit. Now, again, that realm is presently veiled to us, it is, after all, the invisible realm. All the host of heaven worships God day and night unceasingly in the invisible heavens, the realm of the Spirit. And every Lord's Day, our worship is a participation in that heavenly worship in the realm of the Spirit. It's the same worship that John experienced on the Isle of Patmos. But here's the only difference. What remains invisible to us was made visible to John. What remains veiled to us was unveiled to John. In other words, he experienced an apocalypse that is, a revealing of the upper invisible heavens. His eyes were opened to see what typically remains veiled to human eyes. And Revelation chapter 4 is a perfect example of this. If you still have your Bibles open, or even if you don't, I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. And looking at verse 1. We read, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Okay, are you with me? You see, John saw what is typically veiled to human eyes. His eyes were open to see. He says, he looked and behold, a door was standing open into heaven. He could see that with his eyes. And Christ spoke to him with a voice like a trumpet and said, come up here. In other words, enter through that doorway. And I will show you what must take place after this. And once he entered that door, where was he? He says, at once I was in the Spirit. He was in the realm of the Spirit and saw a throne in heaven and one seated on that throne. And there it is. That is where we all worship each Lord's Day. We do not see it with our eyes because it has failed to us. But nevertheless, that is where our worship takes place. We are worshiping in this age By faith and not by sight. It's veiled to our eyes, but we are present with the Lord in worshiping at His throne in heaven. Okay, so move back with me to Revelation chapter 1. John was worshiping in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he receives a revelation, an apocalypse. And has these visions of which he was instructed to write down, verse 19, the things that he has seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And he is to write them in a book, verse 10, and send it, the book, to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, we began discussing last week this first vision that John received. In verses 9 through 20. And we focused on the description of the Son of Man. Specifically, his divine features. Which, though initially terrifying to John, would have nevertheless brought him comfort. There were additional aspects to this vision which are extremely important for interpreting this vision as a whole. For instance, in verses 12 through 13... John turned to see the voice that was speaking to him. And on turning, he saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And in verse 16, John records that the son of man held stars in his right hand. That son of man is the God-man. It's a reference to the Messiah that initially comes in Daniel chapter 7. And so that's what immediately comes to the front of this vision, or immediately stands out to us, is this Son of Man figure. And he's wearing a long robe and a golden sash. And what are these but the priestly vestments, the high priestly vestments? Leviticus chapter 8, verse 7 tells of the ordination of Aaron, the high priest in the Old Testament, the very first high priest. And we are told that Moses put a sash around his waist and clothed him with a robe. And so what John here is seeing in this vision is a picture of the resurrected and ascended Christ as the great high priest in heaven, who is in the midst of seven golden lampstands now also in Leviticus we are told in chapter 24 verses 1 through 4 that Israel was to bring Aaron olive oil that he might tend the lampstand or the menorah as it's called in Hebrew that he might tend this menorah this lampstand that was in the tabernacle. And specifically, it says that Aaron, the high priest, was to arrange the lampstand from evening until morning before the Lord regularly. From evening to morning, to make sure that the, the, the lights on the lamp do not burn out. And so what John is seeing in this vision is Christ, our heavenly high priest, who is continuously tending Lampstands, seven lampstands. Just as Aaron in the Old Testament would tend the lampstand in the tabernacle or the temple, later in the temple when it was built. Now, our passage informs us that what John was seeing was indeed symbolic. Jesus himself interprets portions of this vision in verse 20, and says, As for the mystery... Okay, right there. The word mystery is a term that refers to the hidden meaning of something. In other words, it's an interpretation of a symbol. And so the symbols here that he explains to us, or gives us the meaning to, are stars which are held in Christ's right hand, and the, the lampstands. He says, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, <clears throat> some say that the angels here refer to the minister of each church. Since the word angel... In Greek, literally means a messenger. And a minister is a messenger of sorts. And that's certainly possible, but I'm not quite convinced of that interpretation. I think it refers to literal angelic beings, which means that an angel is assigned to each of the seven churches. Now, we've already discussed in previous sermons that the number seven itself is symbolic It's symbolic of completeness or wholeness. And so the seven churches actually represent the complete, the whole, universal church throughout this age. And so the interpretation of the vision then is that each church throughout the world is assigned a heavenly being, an angel, and that the risen and glorified Christ is in heaven tending to the needs of all those churches. So this was not Christ's function only to those seven churches in Asia Minor. It's his role to the whole complete church throughout this age. Christ, you see, is the glory in the midst of his lampstand churches. Now the question is, why are the churches being symbolized as lampstands? To answer that question it would help to know the Old Testament background of the lampstand or of the menorah And here I think Meredith Klein has been especially helpful He writes Lit each evening to burn throughout the night The menorah in the holy place of the tabernacle was a light shining in the darkness End quote Now, if the lampstands refer to the church, then this means that Christ tends to the church in order to keep them shining in the darkness of this world. To be a light for Christ in the darkness of this world means that we are to bear testimony to Christ in the gospel. That was one of the main themes that we drew out of the earlier sermons: was bearing witness, to be a testimony. It comes from that word, martureo, you remember, to be a martyr, that is, to bear testimony even unto death if necessary, or all the way to our deaths. And so we are to be a light for Christ in the darkness of this world. Well, what what does a light do? It sheds light upon or exposes what can be hidden in the darkness. It means to bear witness then, or to be a testimony to the truth of the gospel in the midst of the tribulation that we find in this age, in the darkness of this age. And we do this by living according to our faith. And so in the vision, Christ, the heavenly high priest, is tending or caring for the churches so that their light-bearing witness does not go out. Therefore, the light of our lampstand is our witness to Christ in the age of tribulation, or as Paul calls it, in this present evil age in the book of Galatians. Now, in the next two chapters of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, Christ is going to exhort the seven churches to remain faithful and in some cases even to repent of certain sins. For example, in chapter 2, verse 5, he tells the church at Ephesus, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not... I will come to you and listen and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, in certain ways, the light at the church in Ephesus was starting to burn dimly. And so he was calling them to repent They were believing the truth, but their works, their deeds, were not lining up always with their beliefs. And true faith is not a dead faith, but a lively faith. Faith without works is a dead faith. Now, Ephesus did not have a dead faith at this point, but Christ, tending to their lamp, warns them to repent and to do the works that they did at first. Or else he would remove the lampstand. And we know from church history that Ephesus did repent at least initially because the church was very strong there for the next few centuries. Now if the seven churches of Asia Minor are really symbolic of the whole church, then that is really a warning to the whole church throughout this age and not just to Ephesus. And so in the next two chapters, we will see, in part, how Christ tends to and cares for his church throughout this age. He does so by exhorting them, by commending them, by warning them, and so forth. He builds up their faith and stirs them up to love and good works. So, how does Christ tend to his lampstand churches throughout this age? Well, primarily he does so in our Lord's Day worship services. Remember, we worship in the realm of the Spirit on the Lord's Day in the presence of Christ, our great high priest. Christ tells us, In his earthly ministry, that where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is also. Now, the immediate context of that statement was directed at judicial gatherings of the church. But it is very much true of the gathering church each week, each Lord's Day. In each Lord's Day worship service, he speaks to us through the call to worship. Through the reading of the law. Through the pronouncement of our pardon, through the reading and preaching of his word, and through the blessing in the benediction. And in return, we respond by singing praises in confessing our sins, in prayer and in confession of our faith. You see, part of our witness bearing is in our weekly attendance at Lord's Day worship services. And so when we set the Lord's day apart from the others and use that day to worship the Lord, we are displaying that we are set apart or that we have been set apart from the rest of the fallen world, that we are lights in the midst of this dark world and in this present age of tribulation. When our attendants, beloved, beloved, is weak, we are not bearing good testimony to Christ in this present evil age. And not only do we fail to be good witnesses, but we are also limiting the means of grace by which Christ tends to us, His lampstand church. Now, in addition to this, I would say that our daily family worship is another way that Christ tends to his church. As well as in our own individual daily Bible reading and prayer lives. See, Christ is, of course, present to us in a unique way in our Lord's Day worship services. But he is present with his church always. Which was symbolized to us in Acts chapter 2 by the pouring out of christ's spirit in that chapter in acts chapter 2 the flaming lips of fire that fell upon the church was a picture of christ lighting his lampstand church by pouring out his spirit upon them you remember the flaming lips of fire resting upon their heads it was a community lit for christ it was a lampstand community The spirit of the risen Lord then is always present with his church. And the spirit, beloved, always works in conjunction with the word and prayer. And so this is another way that Christ tends to his church. He's present with them always and he tends them through his word and prayer by the power of the spirit. Now, I know that we all have busy lives. I feel this constraint myself. Sometimes I need help. I need someone to hold me accountable. But we all need to be mindful of the means by which Christ tends to and cares for us in this age. And therefore, we need to make a diligent use of those means. Now, that is just part of our witness bearing. We're also called to shine our lights in exposing the false claims of the unbelieving world. This was just as much true of the old covenant people of God as it is now for the new covenant people of God. In speaking of both communities, Meredith Klein also writes, The Israel of God performs its menorah mission in the darkness of a world blinded by Satan's anti-theology, worshiping the cult of no gods. The shining of the menorah church is a witnessing to the true God of heavenly glory that has the effect of condemning the counterclaims of the satanic idol, which is a lie, and pitch darkness, end quote. In other words... Klein is saying that the church is to shine their lights by speaking the truth of God's word over against the lies that are proclaimed by those who still dwell in the kingdom of darkness. Now it's important to understand that our lampstand mission is not just to expose the falseness of the unbelieving. The unbelieving world's claims, but to lead them to the truth of the gospel. You see, the light that shines forth from us should be a lamp that shines the way to true life. Christ says in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Beloved, Christ is the true light. But he is fashioning us in his image so that we might reflect his light in our witness bearing. He is the glory in our midst. Reflecting his light in this dark world, we must point people to the only way of true, eternal life. Where the lampstand was placed in the tabernacle actually helps very much to symbolize this in the Old Testament. You see, the lampstand was placed between the altar of sacrifice in the courtyard. And the mercy seat in the most holy place. Directly in the middle of those two things. You see, it lit the way from the place of sacrifice to the dwelling place of God in the tabernacle. It lit the way to the dwelling place of God who is the source of all life. And this is... Illustrated even better with the building of Israel's temple. You see, when God instructed Solomon with how to build that temple, he had him place ten, not just one, but ten lampstands, which were arranged in two rows, five on each side. And they formed then a passageway, again, from the altar of sacrifice to the dwelling place of God in the most holy place behind the veil. And so the symbolism is that as the reflectors of Christ's light, we are to show people the way to true life by guiding them from Christ's sacrifice on the cross to the way of eternal life in the most holy place of heaven itself. Christ, beloved, has opened the way He first traveled that road, the road from Golgotha, the road from Mount Calvary, all the way to Mount Zion in heaven. In our lights, reflect His glory and show forth the path that He has opened for us. He laid down his life so that we might have the forgiveness of our sins. We confessed our sins earlier in the service. Every one of us has broken God's law. And there was no path to him through the law because we are all sinners. But Christ perfectly obeyed that law and laid down his life that we might have the forgiveness of our sins. He endured the punishment that we deserve for breaking those laws. And He opened up a way so that by faith in Him, we might have forgiveness and eternal life and now reflect His glory and worship Him and someday dwell with Him forever in heaven. And so as we bear witness to Christ, that is, as we shine our lights in the darkness of this world, we are to light the way through our words and deeds to the way of eternal life, which is, beloved, the way of the cross. To Him be all praise and glory, now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious God, we thank you for the mercy and grace you have given to us in Jesus Christ. For though we deserve to be condemned. For our sins, for our transgressions against your holy law. Yet you sent your son to bear that burden for us. And to receive your wrath. In our place. And so we thank you that by faith in him. We have a way that we can see through him the truth. And that we can have from him eternal life. We pray that we might show others the way to glory as well. And we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.